0: Welcome to New Life Downtown Sunday School, February 23rd, 2014. The first week we talked about major themes of the Psalms, some of those big ideas, uh, justice and righteousness, and the, the corresponding Hebrew words, mishpat and tzedakah, and how common they are used, and especially that word Shalom that we think of as just a greeting in Israel, but it means so much more than that. It means creation intent. It means things being the way God intended them to be, and of course our mind goes straight to Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we looked at some of those themes, those, those ideas, and then Week two, we looked at the lament psalms. Some people call them complaints, and they are. Have you ever been accused of being a complainer? Kind of one of those. I, 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 we have a home group, Linda and I uh, lead in, uh, a couple times a month, and we were talking about attitudes and, and optimism versus pessimism. So what I did, the, another couple hosted it, and I went into her kitchen, and I got a really nice, very nice but plain glass, like a twenty ounce, you know, dinner glass, very plain, no etchings or anything on it. And I filled it up to the middle and I had it high and so at the beginning of the little talk I just picked it up and I said, What is this? And they all began to laugh. Because some saw it as half empty and others saw it as half full. And so we talked about that sense of of not just complaining, but praying those disappointments into the very presence of God praying those emotions into the presence of God. And then last week we talked about the royal psalms, which are kind of my personal favorites, but those psalms at the same time seem to say this is what the king should be doing. This is the king and the ruler's job description. Oh, and by the way, he will never fulfill it, but God is the ultimate king. And this is how God wants to rule and to reign in our lives and in the affairs of, of, of humankind. Well, today, in the last of these four talks on the Psalms, we're going to talk about the praise psalms and the wisdom psalms. The praise psalms are the majority of psalms in terms of, of numbers of them, and so I in your little handout, I've listed all of the praise psalms. There are different ways of categorizing, and I use... The, um, uh, the categorization of a scholar named Bellinger, uh, not that there, I mean, there's others that are probably just as good, but I like his. And under praise psalms, he suggests that there are at least, uh, I put eight through H, so I have to count them, one, two, three, four, five, six, eight. <laughs> I was going to say there are at least eight ways, uh, <laughs> at least eight, eight of them, general hymns of praise, that's just kind of praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Creation Psalms, where we praise the Lord with the idea in mind that he created the heavens and the earth. The earth is filled with his glory. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. Enthronement Psalms, these are the ones that, that show God as, as being enthroned on the praises of his people, for example. Zion Psalms, where it's looking to the future, not just a, a hill in Jerusalem, but the ultimate kingdom when God is reigning and ruling. Entrance liturgies, which were used uh, as they would come into the Holy of Holies when they brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the uh, holy place. Hymns with prophetic warnings, where we worship God, but there's also a warning that, that seems to be even prophetic. Trust psalms, where we, we focus on, our, on God's faithfulness and our trust in God. And then finally, thanksgiving psalms, both individual and community. There's a fine line. When looking at the Psalms. And and an Old Testament scholar named Westerman, a German guy, suggested that all the Psalms are either... let Let me correct this a little bit. There we go. All of the Psalms are on a continuum between plea and praise. And that the life of faith is lived between these two poles and are thus expressed in the Psalms. And I love that perspective there's a plea oh god save me god i my enemies are are encamped around me are going to destroy me i am swimming in my tears at night and let the high sounding cymbals praise him let the low sounding cymbals praise him let the instruments uh, let the drums praise him let everything that hath breath praise the lord now between that and apparent manic state and this apparent depressive state <laughs> is kind of the whole gamut of human emotions. It reminds me of, of uh, Hebrews chapter 4 when it says we have a great high priest who is, um, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, the NIV says. Uh, who's touched with the feelings of our infirmities, the King James says. The Greek word there, the reason that the NIV put sympathies, is the Greek word is a compound word, sympathos, where we would get the word sympathy. Unfortunately, the English word sympathy means so much less than this compound Greek word, sympathos, means. Sympathy means, I'm I'm just so sorry that that happened. You have my deepest sympathies. But pathos, in, in the Greek compound, sum, or sum, Two plus two equals four, and that the sum is four. What sum means is not the, the complete sum means is something going on top of something else. And isn't if you have math manipulatives and you take two little blocks and you put two more little blocks on top of them, the sum is all four of them. The two have gone on top of the other two. So it, it carries with it this idea of, of something coming on top of something else. Pathos means the whole range of human emotion. Remember the Greek uh, comedies and tragedies? Remember those two little masks? They used to, for those of you that are more highbrow than me, they used to have them at the beginning of the Three Stooges skits. <laughs> Remember the little happy face and the sad face mask? That was called pathos, the agony and the ecstasy. So sum pathos means someone who is carrying on themselves the full range of human emotion from agony to ecstasy for you have a high priest who's touched with the feelings of your infirmities therefore enter boldly to the throne of grace where you'll find grace to help in time of need that picture of Jesus fits perfectly in this understanding of the Old Testament Psalms that they're in a continuum between plea and praise and so living in that and expressing in that we have these wonderful praise Psalms so what are they... I'm sorry, this was supposed to be first, and I already went through that. Forgive me for that. So, elements of praise psalms. These are just four thoughts about some of the elements we're seeing in the praise psalms. Why do we call them praise psalms? Because there's a word... Actually, there's two words that occur constantly in these psalms. The first word is Hillel, which is the Hebrew word for praise. And the second word is Yahweh, which, of course, is the name of God. The Jews and the Hebrew speakers would make a contraction of those, and for praise God, they would say, Yah, hallelujah, praise God. So we call them the praise psalms, because that word, Hillel, and Yahweh are used repetitively, repetitively through those psalms. Praise him for this, praise him for that, praise him for that, Hillel, 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 Hillel hello yeah hello yeah that 's where we get the word hallelujah I've, you know i 've traveled a lot in africa i 've training pastors there for numerous years now, and I have a, a, a corny little joke that I use every time it 's my first time to speak somewhere and I, I get laughs everywhere but in America because it 's kind of corny here, but everywhere else in the world they love it and I always especially if i 'm speaking through an interpreter, which is most of the time and I say there are three words that are the same in every language. And he'll say... And I'll say... And I think you know those words. And he'll say... And I'll say... The first word is... And he'll say... Amen. And he'll say... Amen. And everybody will shout... Amen. Sometimes it's amen, amen, amin. But it's always the same word. And I say... You know the second word. And he says... Hallelujah. And then everybody shouts... Hallelujah. And I say, and you know the third word that is the same everywhere in the world. And they're all anticipating. And I say, Coca-Cola. And they always crack up. And they turn to each other. And they go, Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola. You know, and they get all excited. So, hey, yeah, that's the best laugh I've ever gotten in the U.S. on that joke. <laughs> um, so, all of these say, praise God. But some of them seem to focus on certain things, like Thanksgiving. Let's turn to Psalm 136. Isn't that one of the first things you teach your child, and even if you have grandchildren now, you reinforce them? The two things you say is, what do you say? And if it's before they get it, they say, please. And then after they get it, you say, what do you say? And they say, thank you. That's called good manners, right? And we we teach that. Well, it's good manners. Not only is it good manners with God, but it helps us in our relationship with God. Look at Psalm 136, and let's see if we can pick up a theme. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Love is the word there, chesed, H-E-S-E-D. We talked about that on our first week with those major themes. It means his covenant loyalty. It's such a deep word. It means that God put Abram in a deep sleep, and God... Spirit in his presence went through the, the divided carcasses of those animals offered in sacrifice and God made a one-sided covenant with humankind. While Abram was in a deep sleep, God said, I am establishing a covenant with you. And that deep covenant loyalty that God has that would lead God to keep sending prophets to proclaim his desire for them to come back during those periods of time when they were in idolatry and rebellion. When God even has Hosea marry a prostitute as a living example of, of how God felt towards the people of Israel. And even though once again she went out and she, he found her in the street, he would even buy her back and take her back. That kind of covenant loyalty that God has towards us is the way he He finishes the parallelism in every verse in Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His has said, covenant loyalty endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his loyalty endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his. You see the idea? Give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. This sense of gratitude and thankfulness sets us up to better understand our relationship with Yahweh. And there there are many, many Thanksgiving references in the Psalms. Another element that is very common, in fact, it's in Psalm 136 and 114, so stay in 136, and that is historical narrative, where the psalmist retells the story. You remember when this happened? Do you remember that happened? On Monday after the abysmal Super Bowl this year, somebody, a friend of mine actually, uh, some of you may know him, Glenn Powell. He's the publisher of Biblica, formerly called International Bible Society. And Glenn, Glenn's quite the Bronco fan. And he put, maybe you saw it. He put this picture. You see orange uniforms, and the and the um, uh, the little comment or the caption said, you "Remember that time back in 2014 when the Dallas Cowboys snuck in and stole the Bronco uniforms and showed up at the Super Bowl instead of us?" <laughs> you, you know. Retelling the story, hopefully without a lot of redaction and editing, retelling the story helps not just remind us, it helps put within our, in our spirit in our heart who God is. Do you remember when he did this? Do you remember when he did that? Do you remember when he did that? So Psalm 136, after the initial thanksgiving, look at uh, verse 5. It talks about creation, who by his understanding made the heavens, who spread out the waters on the earth, who made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, the moon to stars to govern the night. It's like a retelling of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Then to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, we've jumped ahead to the time of the Exodus, which is where the Jews always started their recounting of salvation history was with the Passover and the Exodus. That is always where the Psalms seem to begin. We have creation and the Exodus. And, of course, in Romans, Paul makes a connection between the Exodus and the Red Sea to baptism and entrance into the life of Christ and the body of Christ. So you can see the, the parallels there. And as and you just glance through 136, you see all these, uh, verse 15, he swept Pharaoh through uh, and his armies in the Red Sea uh, 18 and 19 and 20, you have the names of these particular kings whom I'm 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 not familiar with them, but clearly the people initially that would hear this would say, "Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that one. I remember that one. Oh, I remember that guy. He was real fierce, and God and God gave his victory." We go over to Psalm 114, or go back, I should say, to Psalm 114, and we have. Uh, He said, why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He's talking about these nations um, uh, that are are around them, that are um, idolatrous. In verse 9, O house of Israel, trust in the Lord. He is the help and shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. Verse 12, the Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of, of Aaron. Remembering causing them to remember historical figures. And there's so many of these references throughout the praise psalms. Praise God and don't forget what God has done. Then there's a lot of worship and liturgical elements that were incorporated into temple worship. Go back to Psalm 66. We think that Psalm 66, particularly verses 13, 14, and 15, were probably descriptive actually of the day of Yom Kippur, where it says, I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you. Vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. I will sacrifice fat animals to you, an offering of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. There's this sense that this is probably a description. Maybe they were even chanting it or singing it as the priest was doing these particular things. So we have worship and liturgical elements. By the way, we, we celebrate, we worship through some aspects of liturgy here at downtown, and people think liturgy means smells and bells and rituals, okay? The word liturgy comes from a Latin, and it just means the work of the people. And what it means is this, group participation. Historically, throughout the whole history of the church, there wasn't ju- it wasn't a show where one guy put on a show and everybody observed it, but there was activity. Some people read the scriptures. Some people had readings. Some people had prayers. Some people did this. People came forward. They received the Eucharist. People were baptized. There was this sense of, of if you will, group participation. And there had to be some rhyme or reason. You couldn't just have disorder. So they had a, a basic model of how the groups would participate, and that became known as the liturgy. That began to change in the 19th century, particularly after the Swiss Reformation in some ways, and then uh, beyond that in the 19th century, where for whatever reason the Protestant churches became more passive and audience focused than the church had been historically. To where you even built your auditoriums, to where the one thing, instead of the table being prominent, the pulpit was prominent. And it was a show. I'm not saying they, they meant it that way, and I'm not saying the Holy Spirit wasn't present. Of course not. But you can see where it, it has kind of moved to today. Um, Glenn Packiam tells this story that uh, the TV was on one night, and, okay, I'm, I'm in my 50s. I wouldn't know a Coldplay song if you put a gun to my head. I know that that's a band because I've been told that. Anybody else get an amen? You don't know Coldplay? Yeah, okay, a couple of you are like, yeah. Cold what? It's a band, I'm told, right? Okay. So, but apparently Coldplay was in concert and they had laser lights and smoke and the lights behind the stage and all the stuff on the TV. And one of Glenn's daughters said, Oh, Daddy, are you watching church? Now, why would why would she say that? Because our picture of church looks a lot like rock concerts, you know, where They perform, and everybody else watches. They don't participate. In fact, when uh, the main campus in New Life decided about a year and a half, two years ago, uh, the difficult, logistically difficult decision to offer communion every Sunday Uh, Pastor Brady was at a uh, conference and there were some other mega church pastors there and Brady just shook his head when somebody, one of these pastors and Brady said, you would know who he is if I told you, but I won't tell you who he is. He looked at me and said, we would never do communion regularly on Sunday morning because it is such a a logistical inconvenience. Obedience to the Lord is a logistical inconvenience you know, I mean, yeah, it's a lot of hassling. you got to get a lot of people to prepare the elements and do all that, but that sense of liturgical, i.e., people participation in worship is what the body of Christ does. We come together, and one has a hymn, one has a psalm, one has a prayer. And yeah, it has to be done decently and in an order. But we see that set up even for us in the Old Testament. The people would reply that even Psalm 136 was quite... Likely, the people responded with the, his Hased endures forever. And the leader said the first line. And the people responded, his Hased endures forever. It was kind of a go back and forth. Then finally, declaration and description. Praise directed to God and about God. Where it just tells us who God is. Psalm 146. Uh, all the last five or six psalms are, are just praise psalms. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praises to the Lord as long as I live. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything that is in. The Lord who remains faithful, he upholds the cause of the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. Just this sense of telling God who he is. We, I was in the vineyard churches for many years, and uh, the Lord used the vineyard churches in a real profound way in worship and some of it was very good. But I remember one thing that we used to say that I think was not completely true. We, we used to focus on a lot of songs of intimacy. And we used to say, we want our worship to be singing to God, not just singing about God. And I get that. But one of the, one of the downsides to a little bit of that is some of the accusation, and some of it was fair, that our movement tended to be, at times, our churches a bit navel-gazing, a little oriented more towards, you know, kind of me, and you know, oh go God. And it was personal. We were singing to God, change my heart, oh God, you know. And, but there's something also to be said about declaring the works of the Lord. In fact, when the early Christians on the day of Pentecost are filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in other tongues, other languages, it, one, of the out, one of the bystanders says this, about this miracle, for we hear them declaring the works of God. In other words, that was how the, the praise that was going on from their heart in these other languages was declaring the works of God. There is something to also be said about declaring what God has done and who God is, as well as the intimate praying to God. Yeah, Joe. Yeah. That could be too. The question, may, or the comment, being that was a public place, and of course, we also know from the a- admonitions in First Corinthians twelve through fourteen that the occasional unbelievers showed up at the meetings and got confused at times by the demonstration of those gifts. Yeah, that's a good. That's a valid point. Uh, declaring the praise, of, declaring what God has done, seems to be evangelistic, if you will. It, it's it's declarative of who God is. More than the intimate, oh God, change my heart kind of thing, and you know, and, and I don't want to, I, I don't want to divide things that God probably intends as a whole. You know, again, that that continuum between plea and praise. I love that, by the way. That just, to me, makes sense. Okay, let's jump in a little more. Let's. I want to look at one type of praise psalms for just a, a couple of minutes, and they're called the songs of ascent. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 120. Remember the first day we talked about the Psalms. There are five books of Psalms in the book of Psalms. And if you, uh, starting at verse, uh, Psalm 1 and then you go to Psalm 40, you'll see it'll say book 1, book 2, book 3, book 4, and book 5. Likely those distinctions were just because they had scrolls that had approximately 20% of the book of Psalms in one scroll and then another and another and another. There's no real uh, clear organization of the five the five books, does that make sense? In other words, you find lament psalms, wisdom psalms, royal psalms, praise psalms, kind of in all of them and so it 's likely that the the five books of the psalms were more of a logistical distinction, so they had five because they 're almost exactly the same in terms of the numbers of letters, in other words, they were the same length, so they div- divvied them up, so they had five of the same size scrolls that they could use in temple worship. The only part of the psalms, the only category or subcategory that that has been in existence for thousands of years is what we call the songs of ascent starting at Psalm 120. There are 15 psalms and Psalm 120 says right at the beginning of it, Psalm 119 as I turn page after page after page, uh, Psalm 120, it says a song of ascent. And, the next 15 psalms all say a song of ascent. What's, what's an ascent? You guys live in Colorado. We have 54 14ers. That's right, going up. An ascent is going up. Jerusalem was on a hill. And so anybody who lived in villages and towns and communities outside of Jerusalem, if they were going to come to the temple, would have to go down or up in elevation? Have to go up. They would have to ascend why would they be coming to the temple? For the feast, right? And so, can you think, think ahead to the New Testament in the life of Jesus, um, early in the life of Jesus, where they might th- this might apply, this idea of an ascent? Yeah, remember when Jesus with his parents and everybody from his town, and they were going to the temple? And... They lost track of Jesus, and he ended up being in the temple, you know, discussing with the leaders and the elders and the teachers of the law. And you often say, well, how could they, what kind of parents were they? How could they lose track of their son? Well, an entire village of, of you know, men, women, and children, two, three, four, five hundred people would take a two to three day journey and they would have to camp out every night and then keep walking and you know and stopping and making a meal and all of that it just common sense tells us that the kids probably kind of played and hung together you know and and there were some guys who were the sentries and lookouts at the front and the rear and the moms were probably organizing the food and the dads were cutting down firewood or trying to hunt or whatever they were doing so you could imagine how they just figured jesus was with his buddies and we'll see him We lost our youngest son at Toys R Us once, and got into the car and we're leaving, and we went because we had some Austrian friends with us, and they wanted to buy a toy for their ki- grandkids or something back home. And Linda said, "Wait a minute, where's Kevin?" <laughs> I, the worst, though, and Kevin says that he's been permanently scarred by this. Um, he was two months old. And Linda went, I was in charge of him. And Linda went with the other two to go grocery shopping. And, uh, you know, maybe he was six weeks old. I wasn't really used to having him around yet, okay? (laughs) And he was asleep in his crib. And I I was, it was my day off. And I was doing some, work around the house, you know, getting some things done, honey-do list, and I had to run over, um, remember Hume Woods, the, the hardware store that used to be in town, I had to run over to the hardware store, so I just, Linda and the, and the kids, the two older ones, are at the store, so I hopped in the car, buzzed down the road to go to Hume Woods, I'm about halfway there, and I went, something doesn't feel right. <laughs> and suddenly I went, oh my God! And I, you know, illegal U-turn, raced back. Now when I came up, it was about I'd been gone about 12 minutes. When I came up, he was still sound asleep. How long before I told you, honey? Maybe 15 years or something before I I have to confess something. Uh, I knew it wasn't a good idea to tell her that day. I just, I don't know. I just sensed it wasn't, you know. Because moms don't have the capacity to forget that a child's at home and leave, whereas dads could. You know? True? I see the men shaking their head. The women are going, what do you mean? You would never do that. And he's going, uh, right, honey, I would never do that. Okay, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. So these psalms, which also cover a variety of, of um, genre, some of them are Thanksgiving-oriented, some of them tend to be a little more, uh, some of them are historical narrative, but all of them had this in common. They were apparently songs that were sung while the people journeyed, to the temple in Jerusalem. They were songs to kind of keep everybody going. Now, I brought something because it just, it's kind of fun. We don't have this in our culture in America, but um, Linda is is half German, and her mother is from Germany. And in the last number of years, we took her mom back for the first time since her mom had moved when she was pregnant with Linda. Uh, we took her mom back a number of years ago, and from that initial visit, and her mom's been back, and, and we have as well We have found a bunch of relatives, cousins, and and what have you. Um, And so Linda's grandfather, her opa, was born in a town called Eisenach, which is in eastern Germany. Uh, Her Europa, her great grandfather Bernard Hartung, was the head guard of the castle in Eisenach, which in about around the 1900, which is the Wartburg Castle, which is the castle where Martin Luther was hidden, where Martin Luther translated the Scriptures into the common language. We've had the privilege of a couple of years ago being in that castle. we told the tour guide you know uh, that about her grandfather we were allowed to go into the luther room i mean, that's my bucket list i 'm standing in the Luther room by myself next to luther 's desk. It was so cool. It was just beyond cool. But when we were there, Linda said uh, our, our granddaughter Sarah uh, loves music boxes, and we found this little store that that in knock, and she said this is where her great-great-grandfather and her great-great-great-grandfather were from, I would love to get a music box for little Sarah, you know, from here, from where her heritage, you know, where her great-great-grandfather, uh, you know, was born. And so we, we looked, and they had all kinds of, so we found uh, one, and we bought it. But then the guy said, in his very broken English, spoke very poor English, and I speak slightly better German than he spoke English, but he said, oh, you must have one of these. It says Thurigan Vault. It looks like Thurigan Vault, but Turigen Vault. Thurigan is the, uh, the state uh, that that's in, but also it's the forest. This, the uh, state or province is named after the Thurigan Forest. The Thurigan Forest, that's what vault uh, means, is forest. The Thurigan Forest is, has been famous for centuries. It is in the Thurigan Forest where the, 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 the setting for Sleeping Beauty and Hensel and Gretel and many of those stories came in the Grim Brothers, because it's a spooky forest, and we didn't walk through it, but we did see it from the from the top tower of the castle. We could see it's just it's just as dense and as thick as you can imagine in terms of it, its uh, you know the, the, the trees and all. Well, he said, for centuries and centuries when the children when the families because only the wealthiest had horses, when the, when the families would have to travel through the forest to get anywhere they developed what they called traveling or wanderer songs. And so this is the guts of a music box. He said these have been around for a couple hundred years, and it's a familiar tune. It's called... Um, it, it's Regstalid, Diesen Weg auf den Haus bin... I can't even... I, it's old German. And I tried to get the translation of it, and it basically says, um, it's spooky in the Turrigan forest, but keep going... And you'll get there eventually, and the Turrigan Forest will show you the way. But you can imagine the kids, you know. This is the melody. You've heard that melody before. It's an old and can you imagine when it gets spookier and the kids are going you know and right? So That is, I mean, they've had that for hundreds of years. The Germans have had these wandering songs to help get the people through kind of these spooky hikes. Well, go back thousands of years, in a sense, that's precisely what the songs of ascent were. They were songs to help get the people through the arduous laborious task of of walking and hiking and rocks and, and having to make dinner in the middle, you know, the heat and, and get to the house of the Lord. And so you have Psalm 121. Psalm 120, I call on the Lord in my distress. He saves me. And you think, well, I thought things were good. They're going to the, you know, they're going up to the temple. Well, it's reminding them of all that God has done, verse 5, Woe that I dwell in Meshach, I live in the tents of Kadar. Too long I have lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace. And so it's, it's just causing them to reflect on their history. Psalm 121 is so famous. I lift my eyes to the hills from where my help comes from. My help comes from the maker, the maker of heaven and earth. As they see, you know, on the horizon, the hills of Jerusalem. And they're singing that psalm. Uh, psalm one twenty. Three, I will lift my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. Uh, Psalm 124, if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us. Uh, Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They cannot be shaken, but endure forever. Maybe that one was sung as they could see the walls of Jerusalem in the distance. And so these praise psalms, not, just, not only did they praise God, but they taught and they instructed as well. Questions on, on the, the... I'm going to move to the wisdom psalms. Um, other questions? Does this make some sense? It's kind of a fun uh, way of looking at the psalms when you, when you get into their, their shoes, as it were. And that's a theological principle. You need to learn a German phrase. Not just because my, my wife's part German, but because theologians have used this for centuries, and it's, or for about a century. It's the German phrase, Sitz im Leben sitz and the second word is im which means in and leben l e b e n sits like a sits bath sits in leben what sits in leben means literally is setting in life but what it means theologically is you can't fully understand what the scriptures are saying to us today until you do the hard work of knowing what it meant to the people who first read it what where were they sitting in life at that moment sits in leben so when you read these psalms, Psalm 120 through 134 or 35, you got to think, okay, all the hassle of getting this whole village up to the temple and yet the anticipation and day three you can see it in the distance and the kids are tired, oh, I don't want to walk anymore, let's sing another song. And you, know, and you can just imagine that. It's in seeing that that you can then go to it and, and it becomes so much more real to you. And to me, that sits in Lieben. Any any thoughts on the praise psalms? Let's go to the wisdom psalms. There's not nearly as many of them. These are psalms where the primary focus isn't just praising God, but the focus seems to be on instruction and teaching. They're little sermons, essentially. And one of the best known is the very first psalm, Psalm 1. I had to remember I went to a Lutheran parochial school, uh, Linda and I both were raised Missouri Senator Lutheran, which is the German Lutherans. And we... Um, is my... Yeah, that's right. I thought my watch was slow. And we... Um, I had to memorize this psalm. I remember in, in, in parochial school. Blessed is the man who walks, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. There's some suggestion that... We have better sayings. Better is this, better is the man. Psalm 37 tells us, let me find it there. Psalm 37 verse 16 says, Better the little the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. This idea of better, the better sayings. Then we have blessed sayings. Psalm 128 Verse one, let me find it psalm one twenty eight verse one blessed are all who fear the Lord who walk in their way as you will eat the fruit of your labor blessings and shalom will be yours. Then we have the warning songs psalm psalm thirty two verse nine where where he actually is telling him, don't live that way psalm thirty two verse nine says don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Don't do that. The address, Psalm 49, where he says, Hear this, old people. Listen, all you who, uh, who live in this world, both low and high. Hear this. Listen to this. You know, Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. It's kind of what he's saying. And then we have the simile. Now, what's the difference between a metaphor and a simile? Metaphor, a simile does what? Like or as. That's right. The difference is the simile lets you know that this is not literal. This is kind of a figurative comparison, whereas the metaphor assumes you can figure it out. So the Lord is a strong tower. God is not a strong tower, God is like a strong tower, but for the force of language, it assumes we can figure that out, right? So, the, the Lord is my shepherd. That's, that's a metaphor. simile here, uh, in Psalm 1-4, it says that the, the wicked, not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. They're like this. So, th- it's teaching people by making metaphors and similes, by warnings, by, by telling them that this is better, you'll be blessed if you do this. And then there's three major themes in these wisdom psalms. The fear and the love of Yahweh and the love of the Torah, his law, his word, is one. Psalm 119, some say that's its own category because it's, it's so long. And what is Psalm 119? What makes it unique? Every single verse except two of the 176 verses mentions what? The word of God. Yeah, the law, the Torah. 174 verses mention something about the law, the word. So it's, it's a, certainly a wisdom psalm. The fear and the love of Yahweh that, that translates and, and manifests itself in a love for his word. The second is the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The two ways. Psalm 73, I, I need to end in a couple minutes. But Psalm 73, he says, Blessed are you, O Lord, but as for me, my feet almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. How they don't seem to have any problems in their life and they're abounding in wealth and their bones aren't hurting and they're having no problems. And and it got me so angry and conflicted inside, I almost slipped until I saw their end. And he goes on. So it's that contrast, that comparison and contrast between their way and God's way. Remember we talked about two roads, you know, not this way. But this way. And then finally, instruction in daily living, how we should live our lives. Psalm 112 is one example. Verse 5, he says, Oops, I'm Psalm 119 again, page after page after. (laughs) Psalm 112, verse 5 Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. Now, that's in the middle of a song. In the middle of a song is this good advice. And so the wisdom psalms, why would God inspire the wisdom psalms? Why would you put teaching to music? Any educators here? Because you remember it. That's exactly right. That's the power of poetry. Is it? it gets, it's sticky. We remember it. It r- causes us to, you know, oh man, it affects us. The parallelism, the repetition, all of those things cause us to dwell on it. It's not that God is wasting words, because if we were just looking at economy of words, the book of Psalms is a terrible example, because it just seems to say the same things over and over and over and over again in different ways. That's because that's how we're wired, and God knows that. And so God inspired the Psalms to to be such a a broad and wonderful spectrum of, of men and women's relationship with God expressed in prayer and worship regardless of whether it's at plea or at praise or anywhere in between. Okay, I have covered... This is a... um, I had a seminary class in the Psalms that was, you know, 45 hours of lecture and professor contact time when I was in school, and we've done it in uh, four 45-minute sessions, so we probably didn't cover a couple of things but any questions we're going to close in prayer in just a moment any any general questions it was confusing yeah melissa yeah right (laughs) yeah it didn't make the cut Mm-hmm. In light of you know the conflict that the Muslims have, they have a lot of that kind of literature, and then they have another part of their param that's more inclusive, mm-hmm. you know, let's make this work. That's and a pending on some yeah. part through the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. You know, you make a very good point, and and it, and it opens up a whole thing that I don't have time. Which is, there's really two. When I teach on Islam, there's really two. There's two Korans: the one that Muhammad most likely wrote, and then a, a, a redaction about 100, 150 years later. Then that's the hey, let's we're gonna beat the crud out of you if you don't believe like we do side that that kind of dualism became real apparent early on there were there were those who believed that there were kind of two gods the the angry god and the the nice god you know and there's some that view jesus as you know you know god's version of anger management you know yahweh gets ticked off all the time but he sent jesus because he's much nicer you know and i think my immediate thought is Jewish hermeneutics, they have a problem also between not identifying the direction of dialogue, which is, is God really saying this, or are these the emotions of oppressed peoples that are communicating? to God, you know, what they, in a sense, from their perspective, what they believe God should do. There is, and, I, and I, I've got everybody looking at it because we've got to get Sunday school going here. There is an outstanding blog that I read this week. I, I posted it on Facebook. If you're my Facebook friend, go look at it. Uh, but there's an outstanding blog written by a pastor in Kansas City uh, that why, something, it's, it's got a provocative title like, Why I Don't Like the Bible Anymore. Yeah, and it's just a great blog because he talks about history is always written by the winners. You know, the the, the kingdoms that rule and reign. And he said the Bible is always written by the losers. It's written by the the, the, the slaves in Egypt. It's written by the, you know, the wandering Israelites in the wilderness. It's written by the, uh, you know, the, the Jewish exiles in Babylon and Assyria. It's written by the first century Jews who are under Roman occupation. He said to put to turn it on its head, it'd be like if all American history books were written by um, ex-slaves and Cherokee Indians on a reservation. It might differ from <laughs> the history books we read. And his comment was just this: first should be last, last will be first. All this stuff just plays so much into it. You have to look at that context. I think with the people of Israel, that they were they were oppressed and they were crying out to God, and they were also crying out their emotions to God, and some of those got even convoluted in these precatory psalms, I think, where we're reading as much their perspective as we are, in a sense, reading God's. We're reading, their, you know, and, I'm, and she was, oh, don't you believe the Bible's the word of God? I believe this is God's word, and it's inspired. I also believe in this we have quotes of the devil, we have, we have bad advice of Job's friends, we have Pharaoh's comments, that's not technically the word of God. Though in a generic sense, it's all God's word. Does that make sense? So don't stone me just yet. I got to pray and get out of here or they're going to get mad. No, they won't get mad, but, you know, they'll get even. (laughs) Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for this day. Bless our time and worship together.